Time and again, the world bears witness to truths seldom said. Lend an ear. We promise enlightened, informed conversation. My name is Robert, and this is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. Welcome back. The program is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. A very special guest today, Ms. Anita Weisbord, whose life has been history, and she's been kind enough to volunteer to share it with us. If you could start by just describing your personal background, who you are, where you've been, and what's brought you to this time okay. in your life. Yeah, well, I was born in Vienna, Austria. I had a wonderful childhood. I was the youngest of three. And uh, and I had a very good life. When you talk about it being a very good life, could you go into a measure of detail, Anita? Talk about your family and what you had done that gave you so much pleasure and memory? My family, well, my father had, had a business. My mother was just a housewife. And uh, I was in school, so everything was very smooth. I had a lot of aunts uh, and uncles and cousins and friends and went on vacations and had a wonderful life. Do you have any feelings as to being Austrian today, or did the war years fragment that connection? Well, I don't feel any connection to Austria anymore. I mean, I had a wonderful childhood until Hitler marched into Austria, March the 13, 1938. That was the end of my childhood, the way I knew it. The end of your childhood, the way you knew it, that's a very strong statement. Was there a moment when you realized, even though you were so young, when you realized this was going to be different, this was going to be a terrible change? Of course I noticed, because people changed. I mean, Jews have lived in Austria and Germany for hundreds of years. They were pillars of the community. Then all of a sudden, people turned to them. So I realized that when you leave your home, you don't know if you'll come back. People disappeared. People were... were um, attacked on the street, it, it was very scary. Were there people, neighbors, friends, who stayed by you, who did not give in to prejudice? Well, I had a girlfriend next door. We went to school together. She was Catholic. So uh, I used to be in her house. Uh, Christmas time, decorating the Christmas tree. She liked to come to my house on Jewish holidays, like Passover, having matzo ball soup. There was never any difference. But after Hitler marched in, she was afraid to talk to me. I can understand the kind of courage it would take on both your parts to still maintain your friendship. Has there been any effort to, in some way, continue a connection today, or have you lost contact completely? No, no. It would be incredibly difficult. When we talk about those times, I have interviewed a number of German Jews who often say that their fathers and grandfathers felt that they were German, and how would anyone be angry at Germans? It's their country. Was that the attitude of your parents? That I mean, uh, As I said to you, people lived very well. We had a very good life. You, you felt very secure, and all of a sudden, things have changed. And most people felt, oh, it's, it's just crazy. It's going to, it's not going to last. And of course, then came Crystal Night. The night of the broken glass, where most synagogues were burnt in Germany and Austria, like in Vienna, they burned all the synagogues except one, 
They couldn't burn because it was in a very narrow street and it was attached to other houses. They are afraid the whole block might burn. But they used that synagogue as a stable for the horses. They came into our home, arrested my father who ended up in Dachau concentration camp. Smashed some furniture and help themselves to whatever they want. Now you would think you called the police. You couldn't. They were one of them. There was absolutely nothing you could do. And over crystal night was November the 9th and 10th, 1938. It's just 81 years ago that it happened. But to me, it seems like it happened yesterday. And it was very scary. And they looted Jewish businesses, broke in, took away. They took away my father's business. And everything changed. But then people realized what's happening. And Hitler waited how will the world react to what he has done? Over 30,000 men and boys were taken to concentration camps, to Dachau and Buchenwald. And Hitler waited, how will the world react? But the world was quiet. So Hitler knew he can do what he wants to do. And he surely did it. Do you feel, looking back in retrospect, that the world was as guilty as the Nazis were? Because they did seem to watch from a distance and do nothing. Well, if, if people would have stood up and spoke up and did something, Hitler couldn't have done what he did. But as nobody cared. He could do what he wanted to do. Do you think that indicates, Anita, that there was latent anti-Semitism just below the surface that he plugged into? No, no I think it's just people didn't care. It's just everybody. And, and, and what happened is that at the time when Jews then wanted to leave after Christianite, you needed visas to go to other countries. And it was difficult to obtain. Did anyone attempt, in your memory, to defend the houses of worship during Kristallnacht? No, you couldn't. No, the fireman was standing by just to watch that they shouldn't, uh, the fire shouldn't spread, but they didn't do anything to, to they let the synagogues burn down. No one then attempted to at least save the Torah or anything sacred? No, no. Well, some they tried to save, but I don't really can tell you. Have these events made you stronger religiously? I know a survivor told me I no longer think of myself as Polish. I'm Jewish. Is that the way you view life now? Well, I felt that Hitler wanted to get rid of the Jews, so I certainly didn't want to help him. So I never, I kept my Jewishness. Did you have any specific experiences where someone accosted, berated, criticized, or threatened you as a person? No, no I was a child, so I really didn't, didn't feel it. But um, I know my mother had some incidents where she was molested, but she was a strong woman. My mother knew that she has to do something to save her children. My brother, who was already in his early 20s, his so-called friends were going to 
come for him. So he went to illegally to France. He was in Paris. Now in Europe, you needed identity papers, and he had none. One day it was the French police who stopped him for papers. As he had none, they were going to send him back. You can just imagine what would happen if they send him back. So he joined the French Foreign Legion and ended up in Africa. He must have had an incredible story himself. Did he record any of his memories or speak to you after the war about them? No, well, in interviews, the only time. And as I said, my mother went from place to place. She has to save her children. Now, I have to tell you a piece of history. Right after Christmas, as you said, the world was quiet. But there was one country who had some compassion, and that was England. Right after Christianite, they had a debate in Parliament. What could they do? And after long discussion, they decided to take in an unspecified number of children. They had to be under 17 years of age and come alone. That was called the kinder transport. Now, in this country, there was a bill from Senator Wagner and Congresswoman Roger. They proposed a bill to bring in 20,000 children. It never came to the floor of the Senate. It was killed in committee. One senator said, remember, there was depression here. One senator said, those children will grow up and take our jobs away. And another senator said, it's against Christian belief to separate children from parents. It was killed in committee. Does it bother you that we hear some of the same comments today about people coming into this country? They'll take our jobs They'll change our lives. There are a lot of politics involved. I remember distinctly my mother and my aunt, who had four children, having a violent argument. My aunt called my mother a rotten mother. How can you send your children away? How can you do that? You know, until I became a mother, did I realize they were both right? What the mother wants to do, hold you close, that's what mothers do. But I truly believe my mother gave birth, birth to me twice. When I was born, when she had the strength and the foresight to send me on the kinder transport. Looking at yourself now in a mirror, Anita, looking at yourself now, let's say you are viewing your reflection in a mirror in the morning, are you your mother? Do you feel you have her traits? Yes, I do. I think so, yeah. So you have that strength of purpose. I think my, my experiences made me a stronger person, that's for sure. So in a sense, I, yes. I remember the day I left. It was March the 13, 1939. I only remember the date because it was the one-year anniversary of Hitler marching into Austria. I remember we were in the railway station. I was inside the train, and, and the windows tightly closed. For four agonizing hours, the train stood there. I'm inside, my mother outside. I couldn't step away from the window. I was afraid I would lose her forever. You know, that's 81 years ago, and I still can't stand anybody seeing me off. It left that impression on me. I don't remember how many children were. 
on the train. But there were little ones, two-year-olds, three-year-olds, who had no idea what happened to them. They just cried for their mothers. I'm sitting here at the microphone wondering what a mother says. What did she say to you to prepare you for this? Um, you know, I don't remember anything. Mostly the smaller children, the parents used to say, don't worry, we'll follow you in a week, we'll see you soon. And you just have that hope that you see them again. But as I told you, December of 38, the first transport arrived in England until just before war broke out, within 10 months, 10,000 children were saved. 90% of all those children never saw their parents again. How were those children chosen? I would think 10,000 children is just a fraction. Well, one, one and a half million children perished in the Holocaust. Those, those figures, the more I hear them and the more my audience hears them, those figures are impossible to wrap one's mind around. It's inconceivable to think of over a million children being thrown to eternity. Do you think it's possible to ever make sense of this? No, but you know, when I speak to students, I always said to them, I try to just to think for a minute what it is like. You have to leave the country you were born, go to a strange country. You don't know who's going to take of you. You don't know the language and you leave your loved ones behind. It was scary. Don't forget, it was a different culture, the food, but everything was different, and you had to learn the language. And the lady who took me in was very kind, but you always had to be your best behavior. Anita? You were afraid if you don't behave, they might send you back. Anita, if I may... I don't want to interrupt this story. It's arresting and incredible. But we have to have our first station break. We'll come back in a few seconds. Please keep the thought in mind. This is Seldom Said. My name is Robert. This is Seldom Said with Robert Amato. Anita, before we begin with your description of Kinder Transport, which should be an incredible story. It always is. I've been asked a thousand times by a thousand people who have listened to the program, is this difficult for you to do, to go back and recount verbally and remember what happened? Is it difficult or is it simply a duty? Recount what? The journey? The journey, the difficulties, the anti-Semitism. Yeah. Is it hard to go back? They traveled on the train through Germany and to, when we came to the border to Holland, the Nazis came into the train. We were only allowed to take a small suitcase with personal belongings. We had to give a, a list before what we are taking, only personal belongings. And they came into the train, opened some suitcases, and yelled at us, if anybody smuggled anything, back you go. We were scared, but nothing happened. And when we came over the border to Holland, we felt free. And there were ladies on the station who gave us hot chocolate and sandwiches. And it was the first time I saw white bread. I never saw white bread before. So that was the first culture shock. And then we went by boat over the channel to to England and then by train to London. And there the children were 
some children knew already who their foster parents would be. Some children went into hostels, and weekend people came to choose a child to take. The people, the British people, really opened up their hearts and their homes to take in the children. Was it easy, and perhaps this is an awkward question, but was it easy to love a new parent when you had left your native parent? Well, I didn't didn't love the new one. You just um, had to learn the language, and everything was different, but you had to adjust, and you always worried what happened to the family you left behind. The question we'd previously asked, and I'm wondering if, it can be answered at all. It's very difficult to even assume. But is this hard for you to do? Many listeners have always said it must be so difficult for them to tell their story. Is telling your story difficult? Uh, not now, but you know, it took most survivors a long time before we could talk about it. But now I feel it's almost like a mission to educate the new generation because if you don't talk about it, if you don't teach them the lesson of the Holocaust, it can happen again. And I usually tell the students, we tell you the story of the Holocaust to show you where hate can lead to. It didn't start with the gas chambers. It started with bullying. With, um, it started slow and then escalated to the final solution. When you talk about the possibility that, God forbid, things like this can happen again, are you optimistic that things like this can never happen again? Well, if that if the climate is right, it can always happen again. Look, the world hasn't learned a lesson yet. There's so much killing going on in this world. And I feel until people don't learn to respect each other, there'll never be peace. If you were to hypothetically, theoretically, meet someone of your generation who is representative of the other side, do you think there would be any meeting of the minds at all? Not someone who is a bigot or a torturer, but simply someone who happened to be German, Polish, Ukrainian, Austrian. Do you think they would be common point as human beings? Well, I, I was invited back to Vienna to speak to school children. So I have, whenever I am in Vienna, it's a very funny feeling. It's, I love the music, I love the food, but the memories all come back walking through Vienna. Like a case in point, I was sitting in the, on a bench in the park, and I saw some writing on the bench. I jumped up like crazy because I remember it used to say, Jews not allowed. All it said on the bench, property of Vienna. But nowhere else would I have that reaction, only in Vienna. So when I see some elderly people, I would like to say, what did you do? As a matter of fact, there was a young lady who took pictures and interviewed me. So I asked her, did you ever ask your grandparents what they did in World War Two?" She said, yes, I did. The only answer I got, very bad times. That's all. And she loves her grandparents. So. Do you feel that those who are apathetic the poet Dante, for instance, always says the last respite of hell is for people who look the other way. 
Do you feel that those who are apathetic and did not do anything are guilty? Well, the majority of the people look the other way. They just watched it and didn't say a word. And those people who helped Jews and hit them, to me, they are the biggest heroes. Because if they were found out, the whole family would have been killed. So it took a lot of courage for people to help. And most people didn't want to get involved. Do you feel by nature the average person doesn't want to get involved? Or is the average person good by nature? That's been discussed for centuries. That's true even here. I mean, when I speak to students, I always tell them, don't be a bystander. If you see something happen, speak up. Be an upstander. Do something. Don't walk away when something happens. But the majority of people don't want to get involved. It's not their problem. Did you raise your children? to get involved? Two children, but yes, and I have four granddaughters, and they're all aware of my background. I have spoke to their schools, and when my children started to ask questions, I told them. So... How do you share such things with children? I must be honest with you, I can see talking to middle school youngsters, high school, college, grad school, adults. How do you bring this to the attention of a child? Well, I think education is very important for them to understand what can happen, where hate can lead to. I think it is an important lesson, and that's why I said we must never, never forget. Because if we don't talk about it, if we forget, then the six million die a second time. We owe it to them to keep it alive. I cannot tell you how many guests and interviews I've had where the individuals say, I'm doing this for the six million That's the way you feel, then. Yeah, that's true. You know, it's very funny. One day I was thinking to myself, one and a half million children perish, and I'm alive. There must be a reason. And when my children went to school full-time, I started to volunteer. I felt I have to give something back to society. There have to be a reason why my life today. And I've been doing it. I'm still doing it. Does that translate into a belief in divinity, a belief in a God? I know Elie Wiesel in Night expresses doubt. Do you feel that a God, a spirit meant you to do these things? It's, it, I don't want to argue with God, but sometimes I wonder, where was he? He or she, whatever. <laughs> so, it, it, to me, my religion is more like a tradition than, than belief. So you are culturally Jewish, but spiritually open to anything? Yes, I believe I keep the holidays because I, you know, brought up my children the same way, my grandchildren, they should be proud of who they are and because it's important. What then is the significance of, in 2019, having a country called Israel and not having such a country in 1938. What is the significance of this little space of land in the Middle East? Well, that is true. If they had Israel, people could have gone there, but it wasn't there. So it was very hard for people to go to places because 
people that needed reasons to go there. Let's then go back the years and describe your arrival in Great Britain. Can you describe your first experiences of life in your new British family? Well, as I said, it was an adjustment, and um, and I just went along. And the people who took in the children were responsible for them until they are 18 years of age. And then I went to London. I had to to make a life for myself. And, uh, of course, then the war broke out, and we had the blitz, we had the bombing, and that was not easy either. And then we all had to do something. I did some war work. I worked in a factory for making the wings of airplanes. So we all tried to do our bit for for helping the war effort. But it was a difficult adjustment, but we did the best we can. Was there a thought that once this is over, I'll go back home, I'll be back in Vienna again and see family again? No, I don't think I ever felt like living living in Austria again. Now, I got married in London. My husband had his family here, so I came to the United States in 1947. I guess on a personal level, it might be a lovely memory if you would describe to the listening audience how you met your husband. Uh, well, I met my husband at a party, you know, with friends. Somehow, all the refugees, we stuck together. We didn't really intermingle much with the British people. We stuck together with our own because we had the same background and we understood each other. How was life in the British school system, notwithstanding the language which must have been difficult to master, how was life in the learning environment? How long it took me to learn the language, I really don't know. You see, my sister, who was about 18 years of age, so she was too old to go on the kinder transport. But England took it people if they needed their skill. They needed maids. They needed domestic. So my sister came to London as a maid, believe me, at home she didn't do a darn thing because we used to have a living maid ourselves. But you do what you have to do to survive. Being the product of a different culture, did you bring with you a taste for food, a taste for a turn of language? Did you bring a little bit of Austria with you even though you've never wanted to go back? Um... I don't quite understand your question. Okay, certainly. Usually when people go to a different country, my grandparents from Italy, they brought a touch of Italy with them, a bit of food, a phrasing, music, opera, the language. I see what you mean. Yes, I particular the baking. I do a lot of baking with them. Viennese recipes. So I do like the European food. We're within a minute, 20 seconds of our second station break. The key to an excellent program is when it goes quickly, and Anita, this is going very quickly. Did you keep any kind of diary after Trinzo Transport? No, a diary. No. So everything you share is being shared from your memory and your own mind. Yes, I have pictures, you know, of the family. I have that. What actually occurred and what happened to your adoptive family? Have you maintained contact with them? 
Well, I made some friends there. The young people were very nice to try to be part of them. As a matter of fact, I was a bridesmaid of one of the girls' wedding. So we stayed in touch. They were very, very good to me and really tried to make me feel comfortable with them. That's a marvelous thought. Uh, We're about to take our second station break. Anita will be back in a few seconds. My name is Robert. This is Seldom Said. This is Seldom Said with Robert Amato. Welcome back to the program Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. Very special guest, Ms. Anita Weisbord, who's talking about her World War II wartime experiences. Anita, every child has ambitions. Every child dreams of what they'll do when they grow up. What ambitions did you have in this new country of England? Really, I got many ambitions. just worried, you know, while the war was going on, I was worried what happened to my parents because we had no communication once the war started. And my brother, who was in the Foreign Legion, when the British came to North Africa, he joined the British Army and then was fighting in Germany, the Nazis. So really, my ambition was just to make a living, and I was a young teenager. So you know, you you don't think too much about it. You just go along your life the way you have to live it. Mentioning your brother in the Foreign Legion, which takes people from varied countries, uh, Légion Estranger, now going into the British Army, did he have a different idea of what nationality was? Do you have a different idea of what nationality is? Usually people who live in one country have one flag, one currency, one memory, one history, and here we have people going hither and yon. Has it changed your total view of loyalty to a country? No, I, I, I mean, I was, we were always hoping that we'll win the war, that, that Britain really uh, suffered a lot during the war. And uh, that is, you know. Describe then, if you would, your life since the war, since liberation and the end, the armistice, how did you pursue a life and a career? Well, um, first of all, when the war was over and all the newsreels came out from the American and the British um, liberating the camps, and I saw all those dead bodies. I thought it could be my parents. I had no idea what happened to them. I know that they were in Hungary, and it took four months after the war was over. We got a letter from the Red Cross. I was afraid to open it. It means either they're dead or alive. They went through hell, but they survived. So eventually, we it was the Russians who liberated Hungary, so that was all communist. And it was very difficult for them to leave the country. And remember, we used to send cigarettes and coffee, and this way they complied. They could bribe their way to get an exit visa to leave Hungary. And it came to England. So my immediate family all got together. But I told you my aunt, who had the four children, who wouldn't let them go on the kinder transport. They all perished. Most of my uncles and aunts and cousins, they all perished. 
that was a difficult time to go through because the Germans kept wonderful records. So there were lists where they knew when they were deported in which concentration camp they died. And the Red Cross and the Jewish organization <clears throat> had that list and people went there every day to look for names and to find out what happened to their families. Unfortunately, most of them never survived. How did your parents start a new life after such a traumatic experience? Yes, well, my mother never wanted to own something new because she lost everything we had. We had beautiful things at home. <clears throat> she just didn't want to <clears throat> have any nice possessions. Now, for instance, <clears throat> in, as I said, Hungary was one of the last country Hitler invaded. By that time, the Jews knew in Hungary about Auschwitz, about the gas chambers. They knew if you're taken to the railway station, that means Auschwitz and certain deaths. My mother was picked up on the street to go on the column to walk to the railway station. And my mother knew, well, that the end of me, and she saw a ditch. She figured, well, if they see me, they shoot me. And she jumped, and nobody saw her. She had that strength. She has to see her children again. How did your father survive? It was difficult, but they did. What did your father and mother do to earn a living, to have a profession? after the war? After the war, when they came to England, my mother did some, some catering, and my father had a restaurant at a diamond club in London. So they made a living. The siblings in your family, and I don't want to prompt a memory that may be difficult, so please both forgive me and don't answer if you don't wish to, Sisters and brothers, everything successful? What? What occurred uh, in regard to the lives of your siblings, your brother, your sister? Well, they, they all got married. They stayed in England. They got married to children. And I used to go almost every summer to London. I wanted my parents to look their grandchildren. And I've gone to every mitzvah, every wedding of my nephew's children. And they came here, they came visiting us. We still visit each other, so we stayed in touch. What achievements since the war are you most proud of? Is it your family? Uh, well, I'm most proud of having, having children and grandchildren and have a busy life and have a happy life. Have your children... ...home and uh. lots of friends. And as I said, I did a lot of volunteer work. So I always felt that I fulfilled my life, I give back to society. And now I'm doing a lot of speaking, keeping very busy, and doing it as long as I can. Don't forget, I'm 96 years old, so it won't last much longer. I did not realize you were 96 years of age, Anita. You sound marvelous, and I've met you. You look marvelous. <laughs> well, I'm very lucky. I have a lot of energy, and as my philosophy is as long as it lasts, and have a loving family, and that's important. There is a... 
living in a free country, oh. and I've been very lucky, and I appreciate the life I had. We often... As, I'm an optimist, so... Uh, we often... And I believe that maybe that's what I tell to the students. You're the new generation. It's up to you to change for the better. Anita, we often use in this country and in the West that word freedom so easily. If I use that term at this moment, what does it mean to you? What does that word freedom mean to you? Yeah. Yeah, freedom is very important, and unfortunately not many people have it. So if you don't have your freedom, you have nothing. Do you feel we as a people, we as a nation, we as a world should become involved when we see genocide and other holocausts occurring in the world? Should we impose on those events and try to stop them? Well, I think so. You have to uh, have to uh, understand. As a matter of fact, just now they made a film. Well, I'm in it. I just saw it where Japanese women and Holocaust survivors go together and telling their history. The Chinese women suffered under the Japanese invasion and different culture, different time, different religion, but the same experiences. You sound like an individual who has come to believe, and perhaps you always felt this way, that there isn't any difference. Black is white, and white is yellow, and yellow is red, and we are all the same beneath. No, there's no difference. You know, we all bleed the same time. It's all the same people, and as long as people don't realize to respect each other for what they are, there's never going to be any real peace. I encountered just recently a librarian who said that a number of Holocaust survivors have brought memoirs to her, books. They are not good writers, and the writing isn't professional, but these are people who wanted to put their story on paper. Yeah. Do you have ambitions to put stories on paper? No, I'm not good at writing. I mean, I have to show an interview and I have other interviews. You know, that's all. There's a questionnaire that's posited and posed at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts in New York City. It's a series of 500 questions, but the last one is interesting. They'll ask a student... If your life is ended and you're at the pearly gates and you encounter St. Peter, you encounter God, how would you like him to welcome you? How would you like him to have judged your life? Well, I like to be judged that I had an honest life, that I did the right thing. That's all I can hope for. There is a description and a feeling you're giving me that we're all fragile beings. We are all given to weakness, but you've surmounted those. Your mother does live on. Do you feel her presence constantly? Uh, well, particularly now that I do speak so much and I speak about my father, I do. When will you be next speaking? Do you have a schedule? Yeah, I have some PowerPoints, yeah. In the questions and answers, 
What questions are most often asked by children? Well, I remember one <clears throat> one student asked me, do you hate them? Well, I told her, if I hate them, I'm as bad as they are. But they'll never forget and never forgive. I have not encountered many, if any, who have experienced the wartime tragedy being able to forgive. It seems almost impossible to forgive something like this. Yeah, well, I could never forget and never forgive. Final thoughts. Do you have any future plans that go beyond just your speaking engagements? You seem an incredible 96-year-old, Anita. No, I don't. At my age, I don't make many plans. <laughs> Are there travels and adventures and that bucket list that all of us talk about that you hope to fulfill, notwithstanding your age? No, no, I don't have anything on my bucket list. Just to stay well and do what I want to do. Have my independence, that's all I want. Mm -hmm. Independence seems at the core of who you are. Knowing you and seeing you and now speaking to you at length, that yeah. seems one of the most critical things in your life, to be able to handle your own life. Yeah. Do you feel in that one minute and 40 seconds we have remaining that there is prejudice, not so much for those who have experienced debacle and tragedy, but there's prejudice against the aged, against people at any given age of wanting to live their lives independently. Do you feel it's hard being old in this United States of 2019? No, I don't. I don't feel I have anything I need, so I don't feel. But for some people, it is difficult. There's an old poetic phrase that a beautiful person becomes a rose to your thorn. You've easily become a rose to our thorn, Anita. This has been a marvelous hour. I look forward to meeting you again. Okay, thank you. I appreciate that. It's my pleasure. The program has been seldom said. Our special guest has been Ms. Anita Weisbord, who has talked about kingdom transport and her experiences during World War II, a special hour with a special person. Be with us again next week when we'll pursue seldom said, this place where conversation matters. Mm -hmm.